Are you guys, um, I hope everybody's doing well. Um, everything we're hearing from people around us is that um, more and more people who are close are coming down positive and so I hope you guys are all well and safe. Um, any prayer requests tonight before we start? Okay, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Wow. Um, thank you, Lord, for the gift of yourself again at the Mass this morning, um, for your presence with us through the day. You call us to a cross. Um, the reading is going to be interesting tonight um, um, because I think it's going to take us closer to ourselves and in some indirect way to you. Um, makes us aware once again that you're everywhere always, even if we don't see you. Strengthen us, please, in our efforts. Um, all these scenes in the Bible that show you healing, giving people back their sight or their hearing, or um, we take seeing for granted because our eyes are open and... Um, in the play that we've been reading, it's about a man who whose eyesight is clear, he sees. And yet the whole irony of the play is that he doesn't see, that there are things he just doesn't see. And I thought Mark put it beautifully last week, I want to come back to him, but help us to see. Um, we've got natural sight to help us see everything around us. Seeing with our faith is a different thing. That's a grace, and it comes from you. We can't manufacture that on our own. Um, I'm asking this seriously for all of us. Um, strengthen us in that sight. Help us to open ourselves, to put ourselves away. Everything that gets in the way. Uh, <laughs> our pride, most of all. Um, I think for all of us, um, Moses said he couldn't do it, and you picked him out. So often what gets in the way is... I don't know what to call it. You called all the disciples who didn't think they were good enough to do what you asked. And in some ways, that's an example for all of us. What we have to do is get ourselves out of the way. Stop, I don't know, making ourselves centered. Um, to trust more in you, to be confident in you to get ourselves enough out of the way so that we can stand with you to see things as you do. Help us to do that. One of the gifts of this reading, the readings that we're always doing, is that um, it takes us into our world more completely. We see so much more about our world and ourselves. So strengthen us, please, in the sight that comes from you. Help us to bring it to all that we do with each other. There's something godly in you always that you're always offering. Help us to stay open to it, um, to get beyond ourselves, to bring whatever it is you've given each one of us into this world. Give us the humility to do that, every one of us. Um, be with us tonight in our work together. Um, um, help us to get to the depths of this work. I, I think they're great. Um, help us to do some justice to them. Um, I ask a blessing on, um, on all of us who carry burdens 
of loved ones who are sick or struggling. All of us do. We're human. Um, help us with those burdens to um, trust in you, to not, to not let, once again, ourselves get in the way, to trust in you, to be glad, um, never to forget you are always, always bringing some good out of things when we don't see it. Open our eyes to that. Help us to learn to see that way in everything we're doing. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay. This is done. We've done him before. <laughs> um, I've been trying to go back to shorter poems because we, we spent such a long time um, on the longer one. I, I still want to get to Robinson's Isaac and Archibald because it's, it's such a touching ordinary. There's nothing intensely dramatic about it. It's a young nine-year-old recounting his experiences with his two uncles who are losing it. And I think a lot of a, a lot of us are at that age where we're aware of losing it enough, so I thought everybody would enjoy it. But um, I'll get to that, so hold on to it. If you haven't read it, read it. Go into the poetry section and pull it out. It's it, it's Robinson's Ed, um, Isaac and Archibald. It's very funny. It's very tender, very ordinary. It's easy to read. So, but for night, for tonight, batter my heart, three person God. <clears throat> you remember John Donne was contemporary of Shakespeare, a Renaissance poet. I think he's probably the greatest love poet in the whole of the lyric tradition. Um, he's written more poems on the inner person covering the whole range of passions, envy, hate, resentment, grudges, love of a beloved. Um, he, he's gone into the interior probably more deeper than anybody except the great dramatist, but they're lyrics. Um, but this is from a collection called the Holy Sonnets. They were um, written expressly with Christ or God in mind. Um, this one is called Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. <clears throat> so he's, he's consciously thinking of the Trinity. So as you hear the poem, remember that he's, he's got three persons of the Trinity and his, his poem unfolds in terms of threes, okay? Batter my heart, three-person God. <clears throat> Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine. There are those three actions. As yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I, might that I may rise and stand, or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. All of his powers of reason are put to use for the wrong things. So it's captive. Um, it hasn't been freed to serve him. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. He's given himself too much to something devilish. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you, enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. 
it's taking a love theme but inverting it you know that he has given himself over um, to an inordinate love of the world of things and wants Christ to recover him and he appeals to him the way he would a lover ravish me um, enthrall me overtake me so that I can be yours again so I'll read it once more with no comment okay batter my heart three person God batter my heart three person God for you as yet but knock breathe shine and seek to mend that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend your force to break blow burn and make me new I like a usurped town to another do labor to admit you but oh to no end reason your viceroy in me me should defend but is captive and proves weak or untrue yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain but am betrothed unto your enemy divorce me untie or break that not again take me to you imprison me for I accept you enthrall me never shall be free nor ever chaste except you ravish me it's interesting all the terms divorce untie he's taking all the terms that the world would use isn't using them to appeal to him to separate him from all those things that keep him from from Christ okay um, can I have that done? let's let's start very quickly we've got some tough stuff ahead um, I'm I finished the play a few hours ago. I will send you guys a. I sent out a an outline for tonight's class, but um, it, I was rushing to get things done earlier and 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 made some changes to it. I'll I'll get back tonight after class or tomorrow and and send another one in place for any of those for any of you who are you know for whom these things are useful. That if you're keeping them very quickly, a review. Okay. Um, Aristotle looked at Oedipus Rex as the perfect example of tragedy. And Mark, I'd, if if you don't mind, um, I thought your response last week was so right on. I don't know if you can recall it. You may not be able to, but if you could recall your words, I I thought I I don't remember them exactly, and I don't want to lose them because they were yours. So, do you remember your response when we talked about it? Absolutely insane week last week, so I don't even know my own name right now. Um, <laughs> well, all I can say is if I would I would be really glad if you could recover some of that insanity that you had because we're too used to your sanity, Mark. <laughs> I could not let that pass. <laughs> could, you, could you could you throw me a hint? <laughs> no. I think you said I think you said something like. You thought Oedipus Rex was the perfect definition of irony. It was something like that. And I thought you were just right on because I, at the, we were all reading Oedipus Rex at the time and we're so aware that this man thought he had answers to everything. He was a very intelligent guy. He, he was given the place he was in Thebes because he answered the riddle. So he's a man known for his intellect, respected for his intellect, for knowing and he wants to get to the bottom of this problem, and it's clear that he's the source of it and doesn't see it. So in some sense, there's no more perfect example of irony 
than Oedipus Rex. I can't remember your words, but I think it was something like it was... Uh, okay, yeah, I, I think I kind of... And that was, it, it was... I mean, when you talk about irony, it is, I think this is the definition of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. after listening to what you said, and after thinking about it some more, I'm kind of recalling some thoughts last week. Um, I guess when we talk about irony, you know, somebody, it's kind of like instant karma here, right? You see somebody be, you know, crazy, and then something happens to them, and you say instant karma, right? Because they're being a bad person or something, and you call it people, a lot of people mistake that for irony. I think that really struck me and pulled me into this play because I haven't read it in decades, but it really pulled me in is the fact that he really didn't do anything. And I'm going to use the air quotes wrong. Right. Right. He didn't know that he killed his father. He didn't know that it was his mother. He didn't, you know, he didn't knowingly go into these things as a bad person. Right. Right. He thought he was doing the right things and boy, he just had some shitty luck, you know, um, <laughs> Would you be careful with your language, please, Mark? <laughs> God. God. I, I think I might. Oh, no, I'm not the youngest one here, but I think I'm the second youngest one here. I, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to let you get away with your age either, Mark. <laughs> um, but but it was it was wonderful because he re, he he thought he was making the right decisions and giving the same information I had to ask myself, okay, given that information and you didn't know anything else, would you have made those same decisions? Right. 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 So you can't really judge him as being this bad guy, right? Oh, he's so horrible of a person. Well, no, if you're faced, you know, on the crossroads of a guy kind of threatening you and you back then and the times where, well, yeah, you would have defended yourself. And guess what? Just happened to be the wrong guy, wrong guy, wrong place, wrong time. Wrong woman. So, wrong woman, too. Well, that's a different deal. Don't leave her out. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, yep. so it's just interesting to me. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. No, right on. I mean, all your words were, yeah, right right to the point. Um, so Aristotle said it was an example, and I, I just want to remind you of the, of the um, form of classical tragedy, that it begins um, with a problem. It doesn't seem to be big at all and then suddenly there's a complication and it moves towards a crisis and a denouement and a resolution. The major um, points for Aristotle were that that good tragedy always involve an anagnorisis or peripatia. Anagnorisis is the Greek for recognition that a person comes to a point where he sees that the way he saw things um, was not that way at all that things were very different from the way he saw, and it results in a turn, uh, what the church calls a metanoia. So you go in life thinking everything's okay, and then suddenly something happens, you realize that the way you've been looking at things is not right at all, and you turn. And it represents a moment of growth. In tragedy, there's always a cost because the tragic hero has a flaw that he doesn't see. Marx, Marx just described them, I thought, perfectly. He didn't see that anything he was doing was wrong. He wasn't consciously bad. But the tragic hero has a flaw, and he comes to recognize it, and that moment of recognition is a moment of growth. He changes, he turns. and the, But the cost of his sin is great. So he learns to see his sins, the consequences of them, and it helps him to turn. In our church it's called a metanoia, a conversion, a, con- a turning. So in, in 
in um, ancient Greek tragedy, the underlying assumption of tragedy is actually rational. It always it always affirms a rationality to nature, a logos. That that in in a tragedy. So today, when people talk about tragedies, they think of it as a bad thing. That is not the way the Greeks look at it. Certainly not the way I look at it. I I'm sorry because I really believe we've lost a tragic sense of thing. That's another way of saying I think we've lost a sense of sin. The whole modern world wants to do away with the notion of sin, that, that we're all okay, everything's right. Um, Christ himself does not say that. Christ is constantly <laughs> throwing men into the darkness or in jail, or and we know that he's coming with a last judgment. The whole modern world treats Christ like he's just this big basket of nice mercy. You know, um, there's a warning to be ready, you know, to be on guard that he's coming. So all tragedy reminds us that there's something wrong with us, but it, it always affirms something better. So even, even though the tragic hero falls and very often ends up dying, um, every tragedy ends with um, a recovery of balance, a restoration of a balance of seeing things that there are. Some, some sin is answered and a preparation is made for a new order. That's what happens in Oedipus Rex. There's this great curse hanging over Thebes. There's a plague, people are dying. They turn to Oedipus for answers and then we suddenly learn he's the one who's responsible. Um, but it, and he gouges his eyes. Um, I know that lots of people are horrified by that. And my own personal reading, because we're not going to go back into it tonight for, for what it's worth, I think Oedipus Rex, Oedip the Oedipus at the end of the play is an extraordinarily beautiful human being. He sees more deeply than anybody else in the play, even Tiresias the prophet, because he's learned to see his own sins. Nobody sees into the faults the way he does. So in one sense, he's an extraordinary an example of what Christians are asked to do, you know, to see our sins, to not be afraid. Remember, that was the whole thrust of um, the Divine Comedy. The first third of the Divine Comedy was Dante learning to see his own sins. He could not go up that mountain till he did. And, and you all remember from the work that we did that the sins that he faces in hell are horrific. They're just awful. Um, so all tragedy... Um, affirms a goodness to human nature, that there is some goodness greater than man's sin. The fact that he, the tragic hero recognizes his sins shows there's some power of sight um, great enough to see sins and get past them, even if the cost of it is death. Um, we talked a little bit about Freud last week. I, I really do not want to spend any time with him except to say this. It seems to me one of the values of Freud is that he... He saw in Oedipus Rex um, um, something that he could use as a scientist. Because remember what's going on, this is, and I think this is, a, I think this is Freud's, I think this is an indication of his shallowness really, but in, if you read Oedipus Lex and Rex at one level, you see these, these oracles were given that Jocasta and Laos's son um, would grow up and one day would kill his father and sleep with the mother. And to avoid that, they got rid of him, sent him away, hoping that, assuming that he'd be killed. But everything in the play affirms that everything they do to avoid that curse comes back on them. 
that it takes place anyway. As a matter of fact, you can say that every effort they make to escape it just helps bring it about. So it seems to affirm the proposition that man is fated. He can't escape things in his character. Man has no free will. He's, de he's destined, fated to do s these awful things. Freud found in that a basis of science because the basis of science is that something, some things are unchangeable. They're inalterable. That's the nature of science, to discover those things that can't be other than they are. They're unchangeable. So he found in Freud, or I mean in Oedipus, a support for that because Oedipus can't explain it or escape them. They're inescapable. Um, I think F Freud was, had, his intuition was right in the sense that there, that according, this is now, this is according to Christianity, that all of us are under a fall so that we can't escape sins. We all believe that. That's our faith, that all sin is a part of our lives for all of us. There's something wrong with all of us. I think his big mistake was associating it literally with a sexual act and um, defying the Father. And I'm not denying that there's not some truth in that because I believe there is. But I think for him to explicitly relate it to sex and killing the Father is where his theory goes wrong because I don't think... I don't think that's literally true of all people. Even if all young men grow up at some point and want to have romantic notions about their mothers or um, <clears throat> want to kill their father, um, I, I, I think Freud went to an extreme by positing that as um, what's determinative of all human beings, and that's what entered the modern world. So I'd like to just put that behind us. Um, it seems to me that that view is Manichaean at its root um, because for Freud to associate it with a sexual act meant that in the act of creation a human being is bringing evil into the world ma making of, of a human person evil there's some truth to that but I, I think the way he's formulated um, creates problems and I'm hoping that our, the work that we did last week at least uncovers some of them. Um, one of the great questions that we're left with with Oedipus Rex is, is man's end fated? Is he predestined? Um, and so, as a consequence, does he have no free will? Um, I'm just repeating what I said a few minutes ago. Everything that happens in Oedipus Rex seems to suggest that man has no free will, that no matter how hard he tries to escape, a fate, everything he does is going to bring him back to it. So he's predestined. So that's one of the major questions I think um, that we have to deal with in dealing with Oedipus Rex. Um, I think one of the one of the problems is, is if you read Oedipus Rex and isolate it from Oedipus at Colonus, you miss something because remember the oracle in Oedipus Rex is that um, the son to Jocasta and Laos would one day kill the father and marry the mother. And there's a sense in which Oedipus as a man would end up miserable. Oedipus Rex ends with him gouging out his eyes and having to bear this horrible awareness that he's been sleeping with his mother, that the children he um, produced 
um, are both his um, sons and daughters while he's also their brothers because his relationship with his wife is incestuous. So he's got that multiple relationship with his siblings. Um, but what we, f what we discover in reading Oedipus at Colonus, the work that we're going to look at tonight, is that Oedipus ends up happy and he's blessed. So it's, it's going to raise all sorts of questions for me that I want to bring to you guys. Um, how, how, how do we deal with this question of free will and fate when we put the plays together? So that's one of the things we're going to have to do tonight. And, um, Oedipus Rex ends um, with, a, with a, a sense of dread that, that human beings are capable of committing these horrendous acts. And yet the very man who committed those sins ends up blessed. And here's what's, here's what's so telling. That man who committed those awful sins is not only happy at the end and blessed, he is the source of blessings around him. That if people reject him, they're going to be bringing a curse down on themselves. If they make a place for him, um, they're going to be bringing blessings on themselves. So something happens when a man accepts his sins and bears the suffering that comes from his awareness of them. He attains a kind of blessedness. That so corresponds to our faith. I hope everybody's aware of that. We, we're asked as Catholics to take seriously our faults that we put our God on a cross, crucifying him, but that in being aware of them and repenting them, going to confession and saying, I've sinned, we enter into a state of blessedness. We become with, one with God. So um, what Sophocles is showing us is very, very close to the truths of our church, that wisdom, wisdom only comes through suffering, and the suffering is the result of learning to see our sins and doing something about them. So that's the whole action if we, if we put the three plays together. That's just a quick review. Um, to start tonight, what I want to do is, is just um, cover a couple of background matters here. I, on the site, if you guys haven't gone on there, you should go on. On the site, under the Sophocles folder, I've included a, um, a, a file that I wrote ages ago dealing with the um, Sophocles trilogy. Um, if you've if you've gone there, you'll know, or if you've done any reading in the background of this, that you'll know that there's a difference between the sequence of events as they occur within the plays themselves and the order in which the plays were written. So the order of composition is Antigone, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus Aclonus. Now that's crucial. I, I, it's absolutely crucial to see this. And the, and the time distance between them was roughly 10, 15 years. Um, Sophocles wrote Oedipus at Colonus when he was at, uh, approaching his death. Um, he wrote Antigone ages before when he was younger. And he'd written close to 100 plays, I think, in his lifetime. But this trilogy is the, is the, is the, the great work of his life. So in order of composition, he, he wrote Oedip or Antigone first. 
I'm going to read from Antigone in a few minutes just to give you a sense of something important going on there. In Antigone, Antigone rebels against Creon because Creon has put out an edict that nobody will bury um, Polynices because Polynices was a rebel against the state, turned against the state to attack his brother. The two brothers killed each other. Eteocles, his, his brother, Antigone's brother, is given... Um, an honorable burial because he was defending the state, but because Polynices was attacking the state, Creon forbids anybody to bury him. And Antigone takes the position that he's his brother, she will not not bury that man. And what happens in that play is that she will actually end up being um, persecuted. She'll be put in a tomb in a, and where she'll be expected to die, but she hangs herself and Creon's son, Haman, who loved her, um, will kill himself in despair. So it's a dark, and Creon will hold himself responsible for all the dark things that happens, because in lots of ways he is. So Antigone is a very dark tragedy, much more, in some ways darker, not as gory, but dark because of so many deaths. Then Sophocles wrote Oedipus Rex, which we, which we talked about last week, and then Years after that, he wrote Oedipus at Colonus, and in that play, as you know, Oedipus ends up happy. So in the, in the order in which they were composed, it goes from a very, very dark play to a dark play with a bloody, grisly ending, Oedipus gouging at his eyes, to a play in which I'm going to say, <laughs> you can trust me on this for a second, I'm going to say, radically transforms the notion of Greek tragedy. Because what happens at the end of Oedipus Rex is not blood and gore. It doesn't end up with a lot of people dying. It could have. I mean, we know that Polynices is going to go on to his death in a war against his brother. It ends with um, um, Oedipus and um, Theseus and others, the Oedipus's daughters, going off into this holy space and then being asked to back off, to turn away and go back, while something happens with Oedipus. What happens is left a mystery. He's either assumed by the gods into the heavens or is received into the earth. But in either case, it's understood that he, he's blessed. And the, the ending is as, is as close to an experience of a, of a mystical union with God as I've ever known. Um, he's, he's bathed by his daughters. He's prepared for the death. Um, everybody's asked to leave while this moment takes place, and suddenly he's accepted into the afterlife, blessed by the gods. A light comes that's almost blinding. Theseus has to shield his eyes. And Oedipus, who was blind, was the one leading them to that spot. They followed him. So at Oedipus at Colonus ends with the action approaching holiness. The call that he gives his daughters is to love. That's his last word. He says the one thing that's most important for you is to love. So um, that play does something that no other Greek tragedian did. Um, so if we start with, in, if we take them in the order of composition, it's Antigone, Oedipus Rex, and then Oedipus Colonus. Wow. If um, somebody's at the door, if we, sorry, if we take them in the order of sequence, then 
Um, Ed, um, Ed, let's see, Oedipus Rex comes first, then Oedipus at Colonus comes next, and Antigone ends it. So it goes from Oedipus Rex to this dark play with, um, or I mean this light play at, at Colonus, and then it ends with this very dark play with Antigone. So keep that in mind, because if you, if you look at the sequence of events, it plays out the whole trilogy from Oedipus becoming the ruler of Thebes to um, Antigone dying. If you take in the order of composition, you see this extraordinary change taking place in the poet. That he comes to a vision of something close to holiness that enters the, the vision of the Greek um, tragedians. Um, any, any questions about that so far? about the three plays, because I, I, if you've, we didn't do Antigone, and I'm not expecting anybody to have read it, but I, if, if you, um, if any of you have any questions, go ahead. I don't want to take a lot of time with them, but it's important to know that it, you, you can't really treat the plays separately, because they are part of a trilogy, and they need to be read as a part of that trilogy. Fred, go ahead. I, I was just going <coughs> to add to something you said. I, I read uh, an article that talked about what the people experienced when they saw the play at the festival of uh, Dionysus. Right, right. And it was described as almost a religious experience for them because they had had Oedipus Rex before, and then particularly the last, well, not the last scene, but the scene with Theseus and the blinding light. They had fires raging and, you know, thunder yeah. going on in the yeah. background. Yeah. And uh, it was it was really you know the whole dramatic irony comes to a rousing conclusion apparently and and so it just kind of brings to light that that point that it it really struck the audience as uh, as quite a religious experience. Yeah. Yeah. The, one of the interesting things about me, I, I mean, I'm not a scholar in this, so I, I'm I don't say any of this with anything authoritative, but. The interesting thing about me is that the experiences were annual, and so comedy and tragedy were an annual part of the Greek experience. And it just seems to me that it's really important that they were annual because it was a reminder to the Greeks that um, that there was something wrong with man, that his hubris, his pride, was a real problem, and every one of them um, made the audience aware of the frailties of our human nature and the dangers we face when we um, when we take the gods for granted. So to me it was it was as if every year they had an annual kind of therapeutic experience, a reminder that there was something wrong with the will and it needed to be reinforced so that the plays were held annually. Um, they were very much part of the Greek experience. Um, if you if you compare to them with, to what goes on in the theater today, <laughs> I, mean, I mean it's almost laughable. You know, um, annually they were taken back to a tragic view that reaffirmed the, the importance of the gods in their lives. So um, there's no way you could separate Greek theater from something divine back then. Um, so yes to what you're saying. Sue, did you have something? Well, I, I have a question more than anything. If Antigone was written first, it was based on the assumption that all Greeks knew 
the Oedipus story all the way through Antigone, correct? Yep. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There, there was nothing new to them. They knew this. It was a part of their mythology, their tradition. So, so the mythology included the the death scene of Oedipus and so on in their knowledge. Boy, I, yeah. Whether whether in the way that it was given to them, it took this form that we have it in Sophocles. I don't know. But but that that he would have de- di- died. Yes, it would have been a but part of it. But he would have died well, for want of a better term. You know, I, 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 I don't know. I can't speak to that because I don't know the, I don't know the history of it that well. Um, but everybody would have known the story and the myth from beginning to end. Everything, the Cadmus's founding of Thebes. You know that we touched on last week. The the, the heroic nature of Thebes. What happened with Oedipus, the blindness, the you know what ultimately happened with Antigone, all of that would have been common lore. They would have all known it. Yeah. The the real question that I have, and it sort of goes to what your your own question, Sue, is my own belief. I don't I see I'm not a scholar on this, I don't know, but from all of my reading in Greek tragedy, and I've read the tragedians, I know Euripides and Aeschylus and I'm amazed. I, I think Aeschylus is an extraordinary human being. What he did in his trilogy to me is amazing. And in some ways, I don't think Sophocles gets close to it. But in Oedipus at Colonus, he does something that no other Greek tragedy writer has done. Um, he, he goes, what, what he shows is that there's something implied in the tragic action that goes beyond itself and points to it. And he actually renders it, that there's a holiness um, that, that comes from facing your sins and bearing the suffering that will come from that. That's an extraordinary insight. I, I was talking with Suzanne at dinner tonight because the, the next poem, the next work we're doing after this, I, we're going to do Lear. Why? I didn't even, I forgot to tell you guys. We're going to do King Lear, and one of the interesting things about Lear, for those of you who have done it, is that Lear's going to reach a point where he's going to grieve at all the wrongs done to him in the world. His daughters have risen up, he's betrayed by his lords, and the kingdom falls apart because of his, because of his own decisions. But he reaches a point where he's pointing his finger at everybody, and he says, I'm a, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. You know, I mean... And if you look at Oedipus when he's dealing with Creon and his son Polysenes in this play, he has no good words for any... I mean, I want to get to that when we finally get to the play, but there's a sense in which he, he really believes he's completely innocent because, as Mark said, he didn't know that he was committing those crimes. So his outrage at Creon and his own son, even when his own son confesses his fault... To me, it's a troubling part of the play. Um, so it's a serious question for me how much Sophocles went beyond the common lore by, by treating that ending as he did to, to make it concrete and as mystical as he did. That's an amazing moment in Greek tragedy, if you, if you read any of them. He, he goes beyond anything done by any other tragic writer. It's an amazing ending.
Well, that's why I wondered as I was reading it whether that was, I don't want to say poetic license, but in a sense that would might be a modern term, or whether that would, the entire story as it was, as it occurred chronologically, was known by the Greeks. Yeah. And I was just interested in that because it seems so... Um, well, so dramatic. Yeah. You know, the other thing to keep in mind, Sue, I mean, it's it's such a good question, that the story that they received, the people living at Sophocles' time, came to them in various forms anyway, just like the Iliad. The Iliad passed down through all these bards, and what they were receiving were stories, variants. So it's not like there was an established fact. Because in the modern world, in a scientific world, we think that we can nail everything down and this is the way it is. So the traditions that they inherited were inherited from different bards and took slightly different forms. Um, Homer was one of lots of bards. I mean, he was the authoritative one because what he did was so amazing. Um, but I would guess, and I don't know this for sure, that, that lots of the stories of the Oedipus myth took different forms, you know, as they were received. Um, so I can't say about that ending. Um, all I do know is that when you put it together with the other, you know, with um, Antigone and Oedipus Rex, or anything that Aeschylus or Euripides wrote, you're not going to find anything like that ending in any other writer. What he's done is just amazing. <laughs> I don't know that I should say that. It, for me, it's another way of um, affirming what I think you all know for me, that that some of these poets were amazingly prophetic in what they did. They saw some things that other people didn't do. And, and in Sophocles, Oedipus of Clonus, it just seems to me he is so close to some of the truths that mystics get to that's a little bit like Christ on the Transformation or, you know, some other things. It's just, it's pretty amazing to to think about what's going on in that scene. Here, let's quickly, just some of the um, some of the major themes. The theme of the city has been one of the major scenes from the beginning. Athens is called the nurse of man. Everything that Theseus does, he does for the people. It's hard to look at Creon and think of him without grasping at power in everything he does. Remember, the beginning of Thebes is noble. It's high. It's highborn. It's um, Cadmus defeating the dragon and creating these um, tribes of people, these dynasties that got passed on. And so it's no accident that um, Polynices and his brother go to war with each other. They're both noble. They're fighting for power. The highest thing in that Greek world was political power. And the, the question they always face is, was it in accord with the divine order? But Thebes was a noble city. Remember Chaucer's treatment of it in the night tale. The true brothers were going to kill each other. Um, there's this noble spirit. So the tendency of the proud city is to look down on other people, to condescend, to ignore them. Laios did that, remember, on the way on the road when Oedipus killed him. He was just a man on the road, and he was a king and was going to brush him by and dismiss him. There's a tendency in the highborn to condescend, to look down, to treat people beneath them as if they're inferior. 
Athens is the is the city of the lowly. Um, Theseus has no scruples about making a place for a man who killed his father and married his mother. Athens makes a place for the fugitive, the outcast. Theseus says to Oedipus when he meets with him, I too was in exile. He knows the experience of being in exile, homeless, persecuted. So one of the distinguishing marks of Athens is that it's, it makes a place for all people. You have to follow laws, you have to obey things, you have to go through the observances, but it, it, it doesn't have that noble pride that distinguishes Thebes as a city from others. Or if we go back to Aeschylus, Argos, the two other great cities that we experience in the literature that we've read are both noble cities, and both of them have an action that takes us to Athens. That something is happening in Athens that sets it apart as a city. Um, I'm going to say that in one sense it's approaching um, the, the Christian I ideal, um, that what underlies the city's sense of itself is a spirit of mercy and love. Theseus is merciful. He, he makes an opening. And one of the last things that Odysseus says to his daughters is there's one thing that I want you to hold on and it can only be expressed by one word. I'm going to read that later. It's love. That the one thing he's asking of his daughters is that they give up the burden of taking care of their father but that they learn to love. And if we combine that with what happens at... Um, at Colonus, at the Grove, that there's no way to look at Athens as a regime apart from holiness. Because Odysseus's last instructions to Theseus Not were, Odysseus. or Odysseus, Not Odysseus, or Oedipus, last words to <coughs> Theseus were, um, I will give you the secret. Um, of the holy place and the blessing that comes from it. Because remember, he, he, um, he was a shameful man, an outcast. Um, he was the kind of man that no city would have welcomed because of what he did. But he suffered, he's seen his sins, he's changed, he comes to Athens for help, they receive him. And it's because he's learned to see his sins and admit them that a holiness attends him. He's passing on something to Theseus with the promise that Theseus not tell anybody except his sons and that that get passed on. So a little bit like um, um, the Oresteia when Athena helps found the city by making a place for Orestes, you know, reconciling his opposites. Once again, we have an affirmation of something in Athens that helps deal with the worst parts of man in an effort to help him get better. Um, so it's a new image of the city um, the, and, the, and a, the kind of wisdom that man can come to through suffering, learning to see himself as he is, not trying to pretend that he's better than other people and, and so it um, makes for a more humane community. Um, so those are just some of the major themes. Let me, um, you know, once again, we're going to have to deal with this question about um, fate and free will. 
because at the end of Oedipus Rex, Oedipus is blind and miserable. At the end of Oedipus at Colonus, Oedipus is blessed and happy. So um, what is Sophocles' view of fate and free will? Is man predestined? Is he predetermined? Do the gods fate him? Is that a fixed end? Or does he have free will? Um, how, how, are we to, how are we to look at that? So let me stop there and, and take any questions before we look at some of the scenes in the play. I want to get to the play so we can talk about it. But any questions about any of those or observations? Fred, I, I know you had some serious questions about free will and fate. I, I don't know if you want to raise them now, but go ahead. Um, sure. Well, here's a, a perspective. Not the perspective, but the perspective. But Francis and I were, were talking about this earlier today. And if you look at Oedipus Rex alone, it, it raises some serious questions about whether man has free will or not. But then if you look at the work in its entirety, and, and particularly the, the scene in the grove and how it unfolds, and Oedipus Blind actually leads everyone into the to the grove. Right. And you know, we talked about, you know, what happens. And if you if you lay that alongside um, our our Boethius story and the discussion with Lady Philosophy. Um, I, I think definitely there is free will in the in the end of the trilogy, and I think Sophocles, you know, does believe in man's free will. And I, I, we we were talking. I, we have a whole different respect for the Jonah story than we did before all of this because wow, as good. you see it there's, there's kind of three elements here there's an all knowing God who, who does things because he already knows how it's going to turn out so he selects Jonah to, to take his message to the Ninevites because he knows how it's all going to turn out but Jonah on the other hand in the beginning, it's not so crazy about this thing. So he goes 180 degrees opposite of what God tells him to do, which had he not made that decision of his own free will, <laughs> he might not have spent some uncomfortable time in a fish. <laughs> but in the end, he decides that going to, to the Ninevites is the right thing to do. And in the end, God's will was done. done. So to me, you see kind of all three elements there. The impact of the all-knowing God making decisions about who he's going to have play a role for him in this great tapestry. Uh, you have men making their decisions based on their own free will, not always the right ones. And in the end, um, you know, God's will is is done. Done, yeah. So in any way, if, if you kind of take, you know, some of our collective work here, I think it tells me that Sophocles really did believe that man had free will. He just didn't always make the right decisions along the way. Yeah. Fred, let me ask you this question before, if, if you guys, I mean, some of you may want to jump in here, but um, 
when you laid out the three elements at the beginning, I, you put it, I, I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting what you said, the words you used, but something that God knows how it's going to turn out anyway. When you, when you say that, are you saying that, in saying that, that all things are predestined then, predetermined? Because remember, wait, let me just, let me, because I want you to, remember in Boethius, Boethius had to make a distinction between two kinds of necessity, that if Suzanne's sitting there, it's necessary that I say she's sitting there. But does the fact that I see her necessitate that she sits there? Because he was saying, the fact that God sees something doesn't necessitate it. Because what he was doing was affirming man's free will, not that the fact that God saw them, that it made things that way. So when you say, God knows how they're going to turn out anyway, are you in saying it that way? Are you saying that you believe? I mean, I don't know how you'd square saying that because it sounds like you're saying all things are predetermined on one hand, while on the other hand you're saying, but man has free will too. So how do you square that? Very difficultly. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking. I'm watching Francis smile at you right now. You guys must have had a good dinner conversation tonight. You know, God. God knows everything, right? He knows all, so He knows how all this is going to turn out. I mean, He knows. He knows what the destiny of all of us sitting around this computer ultimately is, right? But it doesn't mean. From our perspective, it's it's predestined. I, yeah, the ultimate question is: the, Do the decisions that we make along the way ever impact God's plan? Because I mean, to me, that's the answer to your question. Which one of those do you believe? Do you believe that if we make one decision, you know, everyone here probably understands equifinality. There's a lot of different ways to get to the same place. So the question, the question is, does God's plan ever change depending on which road we decide to choose? Or is it really us just developing along the way to where we ultimately realize, you know, what God wanted us to do in the end? Sue, you've got, you've got your hand up and... and... I'm not comfortable with that. I, I mean, I... I know what you're saying, Fred, but to me it's the same thing. It's it's you want it one way and the other, and I don't see the distinction in what you're saying. What I took from Boethius was that not that exactly the the details would be the same, but that God could make good out of the choices that we make. If we get our wills in the way too much, it may not be good for us but that God can make positive things out of the choices that we, that we make. And I think I've experienced that in my lifetime. I've done some really stupid things, and I've been fortunate enough to be the recipient of a lot of grace, in my opinion. But I don't think the exact things I did were predetermined, and I don't even know that I believe that my exact, my exact end or experiences are known by God, except in the sense, and Bob has said this more than once, time is not the same for God. So I don't know 
I don't have any idea what God, how God knows, I guess would be the, the term. I think he knows me. I don't think he knows, I don't think he knows how stupid I can be sometimes. Oh, he does. If he knows you, he does. He does. Well, he knows you know that and I know that. If he knows us, he knows. How stupid, how stupid I would be in a given situation. I don't think he knows every single activity that I'm... I, 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 that isn't just juxtaposed for me with free will. So I may do something. I believe God will make corrections amongst those things. Our, our theology says that a past, present, and future for God is all the same. And that God knows everything. I mean, he knows what I'm thinking right now, trying to answer this question. And so the question, the, the, the whole challenge for us, and, and I'll, I'll say for me specifically in my feeble mind, is understanding how all that comes together in the end. If God is truly all-knowing and knows how this story is going to unfold, for me, that doesn't that doesn't mean he's going to move us like puppets to get there. He's given us the free will to make the choices that we make. But if he is truly all-knowing, he has to know how it's ultimately going to end. Here, let me, if I can come in. Tracy, you had, wait, by, by, I want to, Sue, I, 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 I don't want to press this point, but it's a way of sort of having humor and fun with you. I don't, I don't think your stupidity is beyond God's. You know, in, God is called the searcher of hearts. He, he knows us complete in our depths. I mean, if anybody knows any of us, God knows us better than we know our, ourselves. The, the real question, it goes back to Boethius' question, and, it, and it's concerning me, Fred, I think in the same way it is, Sue, if I'm understanding it correctly. The fact that God knows these things does not predetermine them. And, um, and the, I mean, I, I'm, I'm far more inclined to be with Sue if I'm understanding the problem she's in with the way you're saying it is, God, if, 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 wait, 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 let me finish. If God, if God works with what we do, which is what Boethius was saying, the fact that he sees something doesn't predetermine it. Um, but there's nothing that's going to escape God because, first of all, God may... Wait, I, and here I want to throw in a term because we're not using it here. We have a nature. We have a, God made us in a certain way. We can't be a bicycle as much as we would want to, let's say, or, you know, whatever, or an ant or a bear. We have a nature, and that, that means we can, according to that nature, do things that's in accord with it. This is C.S. Lewis in Abolition of Man and so many things we've been reading. We can act in accord with that nature and do good. We can deny that nature and do bad. So we're working with a nature. Um, to, the fact that God sees us doesn't mean that our end is predetermined or he knows exactly how things are going to unfold. That logically doesn't necessarily follow. That's, that's logically not so. But it does mean, I mean, following Sue, because I think she's just picking up a line of thinking that, that you know, we've carried with us for a long time. That if we do have free will and God works with it, then something is unfolding in, um, time. in, in time in a, in a way that protects our free will while God is trying to help us 
attain something. But it's quite another thing to say he knows exactly how it's going to turn out. Um, what, what, if we take Dante as being cap, Catholic orthodoxy, and I think he is, we know that some people are going to deny that. So some people are going to deny God and turn away from him. One of the, one, it seems to be one of the pieces of evidence that man does have free will in Oedipus Rex. Let's just take that play, because Freud took it as determinative. You can't escape what God has, has said for you there. That's not true. It's not true. The shepherds were called at a certain time. Um, the oracles called. You know, there were fights between Creon and Oedipus, between Tiresias and Oedipus. Jocasta even killed herself. So in one way, while there's this oracle and the gods saying something, it's going to lead me to one of my... In fact, if I can short, if I can cut this part of the um, discussion short, I want to come to the question about Oedipus Rex. Jocasta takes her life. Um, 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 in Oedipus and Colonus, um, Creon's wife takes her life. In, in Antigone, Antigone takes her life so that people do exercise their free will in a way that denies the gods. Let me stop this for a moment and put in another question. If anybody wants to come back to this, they can, but it gets to the issue here. What would have happened in Oedipus Rex if Laos and Jocasta had not given away their child and avoided the gods? Because one of the issues going on in Oedipus Rex is, is not just what Freud says, it's about sleeping, killing your father and sleeping with your mother. It's about people um, doing everything they can to deny their sins and escape the gods. Laos and Jocasta were both impious. Through three quarters of the play, Jocasta keeps saying to Oedipus, ignore the gods. What they're saying is not true. She couldn't be more impious. When she begins to discover that the gods are, were truthful, she hangs herself. It's one of the things that Freud couldn't deal with because to deal with that meant he would have had to deal with God. One of the things going on in Oedipus Rex is this, this presumption that the, the Greeks were so keenly aware of on the part of man, that man tends to take the gods for granted. He's frightened of them. He runs away from them, like, like Jonah runs away from them, defies them, tries to escape them. What would have, I'm, I'm asking this really honestly for a moment, if you can take it up. I know it's speculative, it's purely speculative. What would have happened if Laos and Jocasta had not given their son up? And if later Oedipus had not run away from the guy that he met in the bar who said, you're going to end up killing your dad. It was his, that was his reason for leaving Colonus. Or, uh, not Colonus, but... Um, the city Corinth. And it was his running away from Corinth because he heard that from that guy that led to his killing his dad. What would have happened if people had not run away from the oracles? Really, does anybody have a thought on that? Everybody looks at the bad side because of Freud, sex and killing. There's a whole other dimension to that of people who are doing everything they can to deny or ignore or get around the divine order. What, I mean, 
if we if we look at the play from that perspective, what do we discover, or do we discover anything? Hmm? You shut them up. Sorry? You shut them up. Them? Yeah. No. Okay, help me open them up again. <laughs> Tracy, where are you in all of this? You've been shaking your head a lot in both ways in the last 20 minutes. Where, where are you in all these questions? Well, on your last question, I think that... Um, you know, if they hadn't given him away, they could have still uh, hidden it from him. And just, you know, that would have been interesting. <laughs> um, or they could have dealt with um, maybe what it meant, you know, to have that kind of um, prophecy. If it pointed to some kind of or if they come out of overcome it by you know facing it over that time of his growing up I don't know one of the interesting questions that I've always had with this play I mean it, it can't go anywhere because it's pure speculation but one of the things I've learned from reading literature I mean it's Greek literature I can't picture Shakespeare writing without Aeschylus and Sophocles I, I, every time I read those two Greek tragedians, I keep seeing, seeing Shakespeare. And if you've read Shakespeare, and you know very often when oracles are given, people tend to misread them. And Shakespeare was far more aware of that than the Greeks because he had the word, a belief in the word, behind him in a way that they didn't. But one of the interesting things about prophecies is, and we've seen it in, in the Odyssey, the Iliad, the Aeneid, there's a tendency in man to read univocally, uni one way, that this statement has only one meaning, univocally. And I think the whole fundamentalist movement, is Islamic and Christian, is based on a univocal way of reading. They, they don't see analogical ways of reading. They don't connect with the logos. So statements can have a literal meaning, but and we know from Dante, we know from all of our readings, but they also have an ana, analogical reading. It has multiple levels of meaning. And very often, Macbeth made that mistake. Macbeth set out to do what he did with one understanding of the witches, and when he came to the end, he realized that Macduff stood outside of that, and he completely misread it. One of the problems with human beings is that we tend to read things literally in the according to something that fits us, that we don't stand in mysteries and see that there are other levels of meaning. And let me just give an example. This is too simple, but you remember in Oedipus Rex, Jocasta herself says, all young men dream about having sex with their, you know, I mean, it, so was the meaning that he, Oedipus would have grown up um, in his imagination, wanting to marry his mother or a kid, you know, I mean, I know that that's I'm only saying that even though it seems absurd as a way of trying to illustrate that there's something else going on and we don't know what would have happened if any of them had accepted the oracles because what we see are people going against them 
And what we see in all those cases is hubris, pride, fear, not humility, not trust. It's a univocal, a, a one way of reading that's only negative, and every effort they make to get away from it brings it about. So, and that's not explored. But it's just, it's a question that's haunted me forever. But go ahead. Um, Sue, I, 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 you, I thought you had your, something to say. I, I did. I just put it up again. When I was reading this, what occurred to me was on, on the same line of what you're saying, we don't know what would have happened. But we have an example in the Bible when Abraham was told to kill Isaac. And he was willing, he showed his willingness right. to obey God. Right, good, good for you. Yeah. And the ending changed. So, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to get too close to this, but, but sometimes we don't understand maybe the purpose or the actual intent. I mean, then it was oracles, and I'm not big on that kind of prophesying, but... Nonetheless, it, to me, that's what occurred to me. Yeah, no, I'm glad because I, I think it's one of the thoughts I've had, but it just, it just w wasn't in my mind now. But that's exactly the sort of thing I'm haunted by. That, for me, one of the meanings of the plague that gets lost by modern forms of rationalism are that in, in, in both instances where the oracles have an effect on the outcome of the action, it's because people read the oracles univocally one way. And that's one that's one of the qualities of the fundamentalist religion, Baptist, you know, on up, and of Islam. It's a literal reading of the world that doesn't allow for analogical levels of meaning, that it assumes that we we have this direct understanding of God when I, I just thought you put it really well. When so often we don't, and in, it's really I'm so glad you brought up that example, Sue, because I wouldn't have recalled it, but it was Abraham's trust in God, not his fear of him, that was his faith that was the basis of the Abrahamic calls that run through Ishmael and Isaac that lead finally to Christ. So, and we, you know, in all the Greek literature we've been reading, we've had so many instances of oracles or, or taking of the auspices where people have read oracles in different ways. Hector had one way of reading the oracles in his pride. And Polyphemus was always saying, no, it's not that way, it's not that way, it's not that way. What, I mean, one of the things we can't miss in all the readings we've done is that so often people misunderstand the God. One of the most beautiful pieces in modern literature, till we have faces. Oriol did not understand the gods. She had all these dreams and visions, misunderstood the gods constantly. She tended to see things through her own ego and misread them, misunderstood them a lot. Um, it's just uh, one, just one of the difficulties of, you know, of of the the this, the separation between our world and the divine. Kathy, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was going to go back to you were talking about fundamentalism, <clears throat> and I was when you were talking, I was wondering if 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 you could take and define fundamentalism fundamentalism as any person who puts themselves in a box and is unable to think outside that box. 
if that's a question to me, I'd say, I mean, I would pretty much agree with that. I, I would want to be careful, Kathy, because it's, to me, one of the fundamental differences between the fundamentalist and Catholic world is that the fundamentalist has done away with sacraments, so the whole sacred, so well, they, they've cut, so a box is a, I mean, you can use that image. For me, it's, they have cut themselves off from exactly what I'm describing, that there are analogical levels of experience, and in the Catholic world, we bring the two together when, so, so for example, in confession or a Eucharist, when we receive the Eucharist, lots of fundamentals would say, you're just putting a wafer in your mouth. Literally, that's all that is. A Catholic's going to say, I've been saying this forever. All Going back to Dante, remember, Dante's way of reading the world was analogical. Every other level of meaning was rooted in the literal. You can't get to any. We talked about this with Milton because Milton reversed that. He started with an angelic mind. Dante started with the ordinary thing. He said every ordinary thing had a literal meaning and an and a allegorical one. And the allegorical one consisted of three levels. The allegorical, the tropological, the um, anagogical. All of them were embedded in the literal, but you had to get you had to begin with the literal to get to them. You couldn't skip it because we are corporeal creatures rooted in time. The fundamentalist cuts that off. He says there's just a wafer. The Catholic says that is a real wafer but it is also transformed into the actual presence of God. Well, so two worlds are joined for it. Sorry, go ahead. I think my question was, and I understand what you're saying. I think I, think I understand. But is it possible for um, a Catholic, like a Baptist or, um, you know, a Jew or uh, Islam, is it possible to be a fundamentalist? Because you can't uh, think outside of, of um, you know, your, your experience. I'm sorry, I'm not sure if I'm understanding what, what your question is. Well, Say it again. Can a Catholic be a fundamentalist? I think what I'm saying is... Uh, Can a Catholic be a fundamentalist? And By her definition, the box. box. Are you asking if a Catholic can be fundamentalist in the way he approaches things? Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, 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 mean, I believe... I personally... This is now we're getting personal. I believe that at every, in every other religion, in every kind of religion, in every level, every level there are all sorts of ways to meet Christ so that Catholics can cut themselves off. I mean, for example, I think, I think it's, studies have been done to show that lot, lots of Catholics today do not believe in the real presence of God. Okay. And I think that I happen to believe that there are lots of fundamentalists who have experiences that don't convert them, they remain fundamentalists, whose experiences some way deeply involve Christ. Um, okay. I think that, now you're getting to answer my question and that is I think that's what it is that is in fact what I was trying to say Could, I mean do we limit ourselves whether what 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 wherever you know whatever we name ourselves do we personally limit ourselves into 
that gets the definition of fundamentalists, when we can't think outside of, of you know, our own experience. You know, um, and yeah. I think you answered that. Yeah. Because, but did you, now did you say that you believe that the, okay, the Catholic who does not believe in the real presence, I mean, that's, you know, that's from their experience, or that's their belief. I just what I'm well, what I, I think I think what I'm saying. I, I want to really be careful here because we're making all sorts of generalizations away from the play, and I want to get back to the play. Well, but I, I, I can't. All right. But I, I, I think all of us are tempted to limit ourselves constantly. Um, but I think for a Catholic, at least. Insofar as we believe, we live our beliefs, whether we're Islamic or Jewish or Christian, Zoroastrian, you know, whatever it is, um, Buddhist. Insofar as we live our beliefs, we're we're living, we're trying to give our lives to something we believe in. Right. One of the differences between the Catholic world and the rest of the world is the presence of the sacraments. I mean, one of the most important things. There are lots of Catholics who are not going to live that belief, and my own personal belief about that is that I think they're undermining their own belief. Um, and they're losing something because what one of the things that distinguishes the Catholic faith from others is the sacraments. I mean, the, the, the reality of them, that, that there's an efficacy to the Eucharist, that if you believe, the, and by the way, this is from Paul, it's the church, it's the tradition of our church, um, if you believe this and you live it, that when you receive Christ, you actually believe you're taking God physically into you. Right. That That's going to have a different effect on you than if you just think of him in your mind. Right. Um, but let me, let me stop with this, because this is getting into the um, tough areas in our faith. Um, let, if I can, if I can go back to the book... I've got a couple of questions about some of the scenes here that are troubling, and I, I want to be sure we spend some time on it. In two of the scenes, Oedipus um, has to deal with his past pretty directly. In one of the scenes, um, Creon comes to um, get him and take him back. And you remember in that scene, um, Creon... Uh, approaches him and um, speaks positively of him and engages him um, on page 121 in our book gentlemen and citizens of this land I can see from your eyes that my arrival has been a cause of sudden fear he wants to disarm them um, at the bottom of 121 I never thought she'd fall to such indignity, poor child, and that she has forever tending you, leading a beggar's life, um, a grown-up girl who knows nothing of marriage. He's, he's showing a contempt. By the way, I don't know about you guys, but when I read this, I thought this was one of the first pro-feminist works that I can read in my life. And Antigone, when Antigone stands up to the king and says, um, you're going against the laws of God. Um, here... Korean is showing nothing but contempt because as women, they should be home doing what women do at home. And instead, they're, they're guiding their father. He says in 122, is this not a disgrace? I, disgrace? I weep to see it. 
disgrace for you, for me, for all our people. But you, if you will listen to me, Oedipus, and in the name of your father's gods, listen, bury the whole thing now, agree with me to go back. He gives them all of these platitudes about going home that Thebes will receive him back in spite of his awful deeds and the reputation that he's carrying. And I can read it if I need to, but you tell me if I need to go back to it. My question is, um, Oedipus tears them apart. He says, all you're doing is using language to buy me off, basically, um, and I'm not going to do it. And they quarrel, and it's at that point that Creon makes threatening gestures towards Antigone and his many to take them hostage to force Oedipus back. Because he takes the gods' oracle as truthful. If um, they can get Oedipus back, they'll have the protection of the gods. And if they lose him, Thebes stands, is, is likely to be destroyed. So my question to you is, um, what, how do you understand Creon? What's, what Sophocles doing with Creon in that scene and Oedipus? Um, and the reason I, let me point ahead, you know that um, Polynices, his son is going to come and basically say the same thing. We want you back. Um, I've got to go to war with my brother, your other son. And if we don't have you, the whole war issue, the whole war cause will be lost. Oedipus is going to take his son apart, absolutely apart. I want, I want to wait on that, but that's where I'm going. But with the Creon episode first, um, how do we understand Creon as the leader of his people, a king, politically as a leader? And what's your response to um, Oedipus's um, response to him, what he says about him? Now I will tell you these men and prove you evil. You come to take me, but not to take me home, rather to settle me outside the city, so that the city may escape my curse. He goes on, now who knows better the destiny of Thebes? I do, for I've had the best informants, Apollo, Zeus himself. He's saying that um, he's just an evil man. What's your response? How would you characterize Creon, and what's your response to Oedipus and his response to the king? Genie, how do you look at Creon? How do you see him as leader? And, and what do you think about Oedipus's response to him? Um, well, in this scene, I think Creon is he's, he's like being a trickster. He's trying to um, sway uh, Oedipus with kind words that don't, that aren't really truthful, I mean, Oedipus is not going to be taken in by them. Um, he lashes back and says, you know, you treated me cruelly back when I was really miserable and, you know, banished me and you are not, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to listen to you now or do what you ask because uh, Oedipus says he has the best 
of information because he got it from the oracles. So he believes those instead. So yeah. that this is where he's supposed to die, um, not not back in Thebes. Uh, Let me come at this differently. Suzanne and I were talking about the play at dinner and I asked her what she thought about Oedipus and his response to Creon and she began her response by saying, as a Christian, <laughs> and then she went on to say, there's an awful lot of spite. I can't remember exact words, but something like, there's an awful lot of spite in this work. And she cited that scene involving um, Creon. I want to wait. To, I want to wait for a minute. I want to get to the scene with his son because that, to me, is a far more troubling one. But anybody have a response to that? And and let me let me put everybody on guard here right now because it's it's one of the things I offered to Suzanne when we were talking about. It. It's absolutely important that we read these plays on their own terms. You know that I've been saying that forever. So even if we're Christians. I mean, I, I take it as our first responsibility to try to read this play on its own terms. So as you look at that scene between Creon and Oedipus, would you describe it in terms of spite? Is his response to Creon, um, I don't know how to, I don't want to color this, appropriate or inappropriate? I, I would describe it as appropriate and more, more in terms of Justice than than um, spite um, because Creon treated him badly and he's not going to he's not going to put that aside. He's not going to forget that. Let me hold. I'm, if everybody could freeze, unless unless everybody, Fred, are you going to jump in? Go ahead. Uh, I think. Oedipus has seen a, a light at this point. I think he looks back and he realizes Creon's just trying to maintain his status quo back home as as king. He recognizes that there's, and I guess the, the prophet kind of helped him see this, but he realizes, I think, that his future is in jeopardy and he wants Oedipus to come back and, and prevent that from happening. Yeah. And I think Oedipus, having having been in uh, Colonus just outside of Athens and and seeing Theseus and and what's going on there, I think he realizes at this point that what's happening in Athens is is significant and that it's it's not just spite, it's the fact that he he realizes that there's a better way. He's not going to go back to what it was before. Yeah, he wants to move on to what is about to come. Yeah, if everybody it just freeze on this, every if because I hold on to this because um, I thought what both of you said was actually pretty well. Just not really insightful. On page one forty seven, Polynices now comes to get his father's support. Um, and so I, and I want to try to present this without coloring it. So, But keep in mind these two scenes because in some sense, dramatically, they're parallels to each other. Creon comes from Thebes to, get, to enlist Oedipus's help because he knows he would be a blessing to the war effort. Now his son comes doing the same thing. Okay, page 147. So this is what happens when he approaches because now it's not a king 
using his power, and you know that in that scene, Creon actually takes Antigone and Ismini captive to blackmail Oedipus, and it's only because Theseus pursues him and gets him that they come back. And there's that wonderful reunion between um, Oedipus and his daughters. I mean, it, they, they're clearly um, overwhelmed with joy to be reunited again. This is his son now, okay? So this is the counterpart to the Creon episode. Uh, 147, ah, now what shall I do? Sisters, shall I weep for my misfortunes or for those I see in the old man, my father, whom I found here in an alien land with two frail girls, an outcast for so long with such garments? So he's, it's as if he's overcome with sadness at what he's seen. And we know he's just come from the temple of um, Poseidon where he's been offering prayers with, uh, to Poseidon on behalf of his effort. So he's seeking the help of the gods. Because Theseus was there saying prayers too. And he saw him. So we know that unlike, in fact we didn't bring this out, but let me say that. It seems to me one of the things that's off, that sets Creon apart as a character is something we've seen in a lot of characters before. His tendency to use the gods for his own efforts. He wants to use divine things for political motives. Okay? It's one of the things that characters, it seems to me, it's why his innocence and the way that he presents it all to me is, um, justifies Oedipus's response. There's something blasphemous, there's a quality of blasphemy to what Creon does. Here, his son has just left a shrine where he was pr praying to Poseidon for his help. Theseus saw him, and now he approaches. His first words expressed apparently a sorrow to see his sisters and father in this plight. The abominable filth grown old with him, rotting his sides, and on the sightless face the ragged hair streams in the wind. There's the same quality in the food he carries for his thin old belly. All this I learned too late, and I swear now that I have been villainous in not supporting you. You need not wait to hear it said by others. Only think, compassion limits, even the power of God. So may there be a limit for you, Father. He wants the suffering to come to an end. For all that's gone wrong may still be healed, and surely the worst is past. Why are you silent? Speak to me. You know what he's going to do. He's going to go on and appeal to his father to come back with him to support his effort against his brother. On page 149, he describes his efforts to go to Argos, where we've just been with Aeschylus, to enlist of their help. And you know <clears throat> he's going to pull together this great army to attack the city, and that's going to lead to the play Antigone, where both brothers will kill each other and she will want to bury um, um, Polynices. On page 149, Polynices lists the heads of these armies that he's pulling together to attack Thebes. On page 149 it says, Born in Argos fourth is um, Hippomedon, his father, Teleus sent him, Capaneus the fifth. Has, I don't know that you remember, but remember in Dante's Hell, Dante had to step over Capaneus. He was one of the most offensive people in the Infernal because he defied Zeus's thunderbolts. So he was spread out in the form of a crucifixion with people walking on him because his defiance of God was so great. It's just a part of that myth that, of stories that was handed on. 
He describes all the powers that will support him. The brother who robbed me of my fatherland, if we can put any trust in oracles, they say that those you bless will come to power. Um, he lords it. He's taken, he's taken the throne away from Polynices when it should have rightly gone to him because he's the oldest. For the sake of all of this, he says, come back. Um, and then on page 150, we've got this response. Why are you asking, he says, when it was you who held throne and authority, as your brother now holds them in Thebes, you dove, you drove me into exile, me, your own father, made me a homeless man, ensuring me these rags you you maunder over, when you behold them now, now that you too have fallen on evil days and are in exile, weeping is no good now, however long my life may last, I have to see it through, but I regard you as a murderer, for you reduce me to this misery. You mate, this is all because of you. Because of you, I beg my daily bread from other men. If I had not had these children sustain me, I might have lived or died for all your interest. He goes on and on. For I have placed that curse upon you before this, and now I invoke that curse to fight for me. He's cursing the efforts. And so your supplication and your throne are overmastered, surely, if accepted. Justice still has its place in the laws of God. Now go, for I abominate and disown you, wretched scum. Um, Antigone tries to persuade Polynices not to go back. She says, don't go back, you're going to die. It's a sad exchange. I mean, it's said, I think, in sincerely on both their parts, she doesn't want her brother to die, and he says he cannot do it because if he does, he'll show himself to be a coward as a leader. He won't be able to lead his men anymore. More, and he, so at that point, he knows he's going to his death. Okay. So here's my question again: What, what, how do we see Polynices in this action? Um, does he belong in the same category as um, Creon? And how do we see Odysseus in the way that he responds to his son here? Or sorry, Oedipus. Oedipus. Sue, go ahead. Sorry, you had your hand up. I just put it up before you asked the question, so maybe it'll get woven into that. When I was reading this, I I liked Polynesius. Polynesius. How do you say his name? Polynesius. Polynesius, I think. But yeah, I liked him less than I liked Creon. And, and it seems like you were looking at it in the reverse way. But the reason I did was he starts out, it seems to me, when he's describing his father and the sisters and the, con- the condition of Oedipus, and it's almost to me like he's embarrassed by that. Now, he says, you know, I, I should have done better. If I'd been better, you know, I'll, I'll own that. But he wasn't, and he didn't, and he never did anything to help his father. Now he's embarrassed by the fact that he looks this bad and he's going to need some help, so now let's come see if we can't get that. So so I looked at him more, I mean, and even with the exchange with Antigone, he's saying, well, I can't do that. I look bad. It, it's, it's all pride to me. And so that's what I saw in that whole exchange. So maybe I didn't read it quite carefully enough, but that's that's where I was coming from with him. So Crean was in charge, and then he got left in charge when Oedipus fell, and 
took over, I guess, as custodian, and then the boys had their fights and who's going to rule. He was coming as an old man to try to see what he could wheedle. But Polynesius was worse to me because he was coming in such a prideful way. Anyway, that's the way I read it. Oh, good. I, I, I'm here. I, I don't want to say anything. Anybody, let me bring in Suzanne's comment when she said, as a Christian, I thought there was an awful lot of spite. And Sue, if you could hold off, because I'd like to hear from other people. Did any of you feel that, that what was behind Oedipus's response here was spiteful? Remember what Jeannie said in, in describing uh, Oedipus's response to Creon was that she didn't see any spite, she saw justice. So there's a couple of questions here. How do we read this scene with Polynices? And what's your, so how do you see Polynices, number one? And number two, how do you see Oedipus? Is he being spiteful? This is his son. Is his, is his response here better or worse? Or how, how does some of the rest of you look at it? Fred, go ahead. Well, to me, this was an Oedipus get behind me Satan moment. I mean, Polynesius in this case was kind of the you know the the you know, and I know it's 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 Christian description, and I apologize for that, but it's the best way I can see it is Oedipus clearly sees Polynesius for what he is. He's there, and I, I'm I think Sue is right on about the pride. I mean, you know, we we've talked about the play being the definition of irony. Well, Polynesius is the definition of pride, and I think Oedipus, where he's at now in his cycle, he just sees right through the guy and it's a the best way i can describe it is it's a get behind me satan <laughs> you know go back and go back and do what you want to do you know i you know i figured out that you know there's a there's a better way yeah and I, you know I, I have absolutely no interest in what you're presenting to me good so go home <laughs> tracy anybody else on this where where, where are the rest of you guys on you guys are good you guys are good. So far. So far. Tracy, you have any response to this? No? Barbara, what do you think? <laughs> I, I haven't even read this oh, stuff. Yeah. So I've been absent. I hope, you're enjo- I hope you're enjoying hearing about it. It's a wonderful play. It's so, so human. I think I've read it many, many years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it is kind of coming back, but um, but I'm listening with much interest. It it changes over time. I, I tell you, I mean, it means so much more to me now than it did 20 years ago, for sure. Um, Sue, let me just tell you, it it I've had mixed feelings about it, but hearing you, I'm I mean, one one of the things that was of interest to me is in terms of dramatic development, you go from Creon to Polynesis. That in terms of Dante's hell, you've got, remember fraud simple and fraud complex, that fraud complex was a worse sin because it involved personal loyalties. And I, so you and Fred, to me, are right on. That um, you, you can read this and say of Oedipus that he's um, unforgiving. That in fact, his response here is spiteful in a way that wasn't true with um, Creon, I, I mean, I thought I thought Jeannie was right on when she said that I was so glad she went to it because 
I mean, that, that was my word at the dinner table, that, that we've got a remarkable sense of what we've been seeing all along when we go back to the Greek world, that one of the highest virtue from the Greek world, pre-Christian world, Greek and Hebrew, was justice. That there was no spite at all in Oedipus. I mean, I, I just thought your analysis, Jeannie, were, was right on, and the same with Yusu and Fred, that one of the, one of the beauties of this play is the way in which Sophocles manages the subtlety in his treatment of both of those men to show in different ways the attractions of the world, to, to so identify with the political world that you end up betraying the gods or using them or even loved ones like your father. Um, the, the subtlety, the nuancing between those two characters and the way that Oedipus responds that you could read the Polynices and, and say that he's being spiteful and unforgiving. But I think you could only do that in a Christian world. If you read it in terms of the book itself, the only word to describe is just. Um, that, he, that, that his son is doing something even more treacherous. The interesting thing for me I, is, for me, con Creon is consciously manipulative. I, it just isn't clear to me that Polynices is. He went to the shrine, he prayed to Poseidon. That's why I tried to put it as positively. I'm so glad you responded the way you did, Sue. Because it seems to me there is something in him that's bound. He, he knows nothing else but that world. Um, it's not like he's Machiavellian in the way Creon is, but in one sense he is. I mean, that's his world, but um, I, I just don't think he's as aware of it, um, it's a much subtler betrayal. And in that sense, it's because of the personal relationship, it's deeper. So I think both what you and Fred said is, um, is really right on. Here's my question, because we're coming up on the end of the class. I'm going to read this at the end just, just, to, you know, just to, to see if we can keep this concrete some. Um, after Polynices leaves, which to me is a point at which the play is reaching its climax, Korean has been um, contained. Theseus has used his power to put down that threat. Now Oedipus' son comes. This isn't a question of political force anymore. It's a question of family loyalties and intimacies. The, the son comes to appeal to his father, and the, the response from a Christian perspective would seem unforgiving. I think a Christian could be misled here because, and I, I'm so, I'm actually really amazed at you guys, because the whole question for a Christian here is whether he could reconcile justice with mercy. And I think a lot of Christians today who don't take justice seriously enough would see um, Oedipus as being unforgiving. When I think the question is much harder, and it is for the reason that you and Sue and Fred, both of you said. But Polynices now is gone, and we know he's going off to his death. So we're reaching a climax in the, in the drama. It's at that point that suddenly Oedipus hears thunder and sees lightning. It's just like the ground begins to shake, and he calls for Theseus. And you know that Theseus comes 
And it's at that point that Oedipus actually leads the crowd to this holy place. So we're moving. Here's the amazing thing for me. And let me, if I can put, if I, I don't know that I can frame this in terms of a question. If we look at the play in which is, in, in, in the way it's unfolded up to this point, everything that's happened has been in terms of a justice. And yet it's clear that the, the sense of justice that the Greeks have in themselves isn't adequate to do what Sophocles had done, or he could have never criticized Creon and Polynices the way he does. Is that clear? We would have been caught in that... If we had... If, good, I mean, this is Mark's point. If we looked at the world the way Creon did, or Polynices, could we have written a play aware of the ironies of either of those scenes? No, we couldn't have, because we would be limited by our own view of seeing things. So even though we're looking at both of them in terms of justice, there's some wrong injustice going on, it implies that there's some standard above it in order to see it, to criticize it. There's a failure on the part of Creon and Polynices. So up to this point, this ancient world defined in terms of justice is what characterizes the action. Now, at this point, something happens. Polynices makes his exit. He's going back to a doom. We know that. So the political world is being severely criticized. The only, the only area in that political world that's set apart is Athens because of the way Theseus upholds justice, but he's bringing a mercy to what he's doing that we don't find in the other rulers. We don't see it in Polynices or his brother or um, Creon. So the justice that defines everything is now coming up against something else. Odysseus hears thunder. Polynices has left. That whole political world is set aside. Oedipus calls Theseus and um, he leads Theseus and his daughters to this holy place. Okay. The thunder's beating. He leads them off. When they get there, something happens. We don't know what happens, but a messenger comes back and describes the event. So like the blinding of Oedipus, this is obscene. Obscene. Off stage. It can't be produced, reproduced. It's too, it's too great for the stage. Um, the messenger comes on page 160, 161, and he describes what happens. He says that the daughters were asked to prepare their father. They bathed him. They made libations to the place. And then they're asked to step away. Page 161. Um, then the earth groaned with thunder from the god below. As they heard the sound, the girls shuddered and dropped to their father's knees and began wailing, beating their breasts and weeping, as if heartbroken. And hearing them cry so bitterly, he put his arms around them, and he said to them, Children, this day your father is gone from you. All that was mine is gone. You shall no longer bear the burdens of taking care of me. I know it was hard, my children, and yet one word frees us of all the weight and pain of life. That word is love. Never shall you have more from any man than you have had from me. And now you must spend the rest of your life without me. 
That was the way of it. They clung together and wept all three, but when they finally stopped, no more sobs were heard. Then there was silence, and in the silence suddenly a voice cried out to him, of such a kind it made our hair stand up in panic fear. This is the voice. It's like in uh, Two We Have Faces, the God speaking and um, producing a dread. Oedipus, Oedipus, why are you waiting? You delay too long, you delay too long. Um, you remember that everybody turns away, and the last um, description um, is of Theseus um, shielding himself at the bottom of 162. This much every one of us heard him say, and then we came away with the sobbing girls. But after a while, as we withdrew, we turned around and nowhere saw that man, but only the king, his hands before his face, shading his eyes as if from something fearful, awesome and unendurable to see. Then very quickly we saw him do reverence to earth and to the powers of the air with one address to both. So he's shielding him, his eyes from the light. Oedipus was blind. He leads them to this place and then suddenly he's gone. It was not lightning bearing its fire from Zeus that took him off. No hurricane was blowing, but some attendants from the train of heaven came for him or else the underworld opened in love the unlit door of earth for he was taken without lamentation illness or suffering indeed his end was wonderful it's mortal um, if mortals ever was the last words of the play when the when they all return home is um, Antigone is mean he can't return to the spot it's forbidden Theseus made a vow the last words were Theseus I will do that, whatever else I'm able to do for your happiness, for his sake, who is gone just now beneath the earth. I must not fail. He will protect the girls as much as he can. The chorus's last words, the words ending the player, now let the weeping cease. Let no one mourn again. These things are in the hands of God. So my, my I mean, you can, I'd love to hear anybody's last reflections on the play, my question is, um, <laughs> is justice adequate anymore to describe what's gone on, the way this play ends? Because you know that justice defines this world, the pre-Christian world. And the other is, um, um, how do we explain Oedipus's blessedness? And what does that consist what the blessedness is not a small thing here. At the end of Oedipus Rex, we saw a man who, who plunged out his eyes, took his eyes out. He was the most miserable of men. The most miserable. What what man could live with the knowledge that he slept with his mother? The children he produced would end up being his brothers and sisters, because his relationship with his mother was incestuous. He killed his father. He was the most miserable of men. And yet he ends up blessed. Um, and wise. Um, what's Sophocles' last view of man? I guess, and in what ways does it anticipate Christianity? I, I, I don't want to get there too quickly. I'd like to try to do justice to what he's doing in his own world. Is justice, is justice enough... Um, how do we how do we how do we understand his blessedness? Sorry, Kathy, go ahead. 
Well, to me, especially at the end of the story, and this kind of goes back to what I was trying to say earlier, you know, I see a transformation. And I suppose it comes from my Christian background. I see a transformation from the man that Oedipus was. I see a transformation from justice to mercy, where at the end he's saying love is the greatest. And and out of that that um, the transformation that he's went through is blessedness. Is what? Blessedness. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and that's where I was going with, um, you know, like, and I'm just going to put it in the Greek world, if they are so locked up in their own thought of justice is, is all, all in all, they would never reach the idea of mercy and the ultimate love. Yeah, one of the one of the reasons this play is timeless for me, I mean, as as you know, most of the literature it is because, <laughs> in some ways, you could overlay that story on our present world. But anyway, what about the rest of you? How do you how do you how do you how would you describe this action in in terms of a pre-Christian world? And how are we to understand blessedness? And, and what does blessedness consist of? And why, why is suffering so important? One of the, one of the truths that you, you bring away from Aeschylus, the Oristia, is that um, wisdom is impossible without suffering. No man can come to it. That, that's a quote from Aeschylus. And Sophocles, Sophocles picks up the same thing. I mean, that, that Oedipus goes through this long period of suffering, but it brings him to a condition of blessedness that, that leads to this real dramatic struggle in the play that people want to get a hold of him and use him because they know the worth of this blessedness, that there's something rare in it. Um, well, Bob... Um, supposedly, if I remember correctly, Mother Teresa made the statement that suffering and love are synonymous. Yeah, but let's stay out of, let's stay in the play. <laughs> well, okay, through his suffering he came to know love, which he was blessed by. Okay, I, I don't know if that's self-evident to everybody. What? Fred, go ahead. Yeah, to me, the one of the biggest problems man has is is pride, and you know how that projects onto virtually everything that we do. And you know we've seen it in so many of the works that we've done. It's till we have faces, um, Dante. I mean, you could you could go down through the list. Yep. Yep. And what suffering does, at least I, I guess from my experience, is when you go through some of those hard times, it's 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 almost impossible to maintain that pride when you're going through that process. I mean, you, you know, you, you 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 try in the beginning, but eventually, if that suffering gets hard enough, and certainly Oedipus experienced that aspect of it, it's only when you strip all that off that you can begin to see the light, if you will. And to me, you know, it was all that suffering that 
Oedipus went through that ultimately left him open to being able to, you know, to see, you know, the, the, the better side of himself, a, you know, a, a better path to take. And when he, and he almost, he almost had to go through that suffering, I think, before you could appreciate what, what Athens presented uh, as an option to what, what, what Thebes was. And, you know, that allowed that, that growth process to take place. So to me, that, that suffering is, you know, is, is, is necessary if you're going to strip away all the, the pride and all your preconceived notions of what, what right is or what, what's socially proper. Yeah. Mark, can you hold on one second? Let me just ask Fred a, a, a follow-up question. Um, two things, Fred. Can, can um, in the plays that we're talking about, certainly this one in Oedipus of Colonus and Oedipus, Oedipus Rex, can, is it possible to separate suffering from self-knowledge, from self-knowledge? That's the first one. And the other one is that it, it, it is suffering directly related to that. That's the first. The second is you made a distinction between Athens and, and um, Thebes there, that something was possible in, in Athens. And, but I wasn't, it wasn't clear to me um, how you meant that in what you were saying. Can you, can you take both of those questions that I'm asking to clarify the one, but but I'm at the other one is a you know it's a separate thing. It's is is suffering is suffering is it possible to sep separate suffering in these plays from self discovery, self knowledge? I know there's suffering in a war. If somebody cuts your arm off, you're going to suffer. Is that the kind of suffering we're talking about here? I I, I think suffering can come in a lot of different forms. And I think it's it's whatever it takes in these in these plays. Everybody, well, and 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 I think it applies in, in this play and 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 many others. It's that we we all have these facades that we we carry with us, um, and something has to something has to peel away that facade, that 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 falseness that we we see in order for us to to fully realize what what is as opposed to what we what we thought was and i mean there there, there are other ways for that to happen i'm sure um but but suffering is certainly one of those ways where you you know you're you're kind of almost forced to look at yourself in a different light or, or you see the truth that you you hid not only from others but from yourself, and I think you know I think that <clears throat> that suffering creates that opportunity, if you will, to to look at yourself and and those things around you in a in a different light, and and I guess as far as Athens versus Thebes, when you know I I don't know I don't know whether whether you you would agree with this or not, but it was almost like when when Oedipus when Oedipus saw the grove for the first time, I think that began a process um, that that ultimately unfolded into a realization on his part that the 
the res the respect for each other that was present in in Athens was very different than what the it was in in, in Thebes, mm -hmm. and and I think that's that's part of what is triggered his evolution. Yeah. I just a quick comment, then I want to give Mark. Sorry to hold. Um, I I think I would go a little bit more question when you said you know it's it's one of the ways that probably one of the ways or I would say that um, I'd I'd risk myself and go farther. I'd say no real self knowledge is possible without suffering, and let me make a distinction here. There are different kinds of pain. There's physical pain. We can cut a finger or we can have an operation or something done to our body. The kind of pain that I'm thinking that that's characterizes these plays, I would describe in terms of spiritual anguish. It's not physical. Even, and I don't want to make a Cartesian separation here. Please, please don't put me there. But I'm trying to make a distinction. What I'm saying is I don't think self discovery is possible without suffering and I don't know that I can back that up except by making an assertion like this because I think I mean this following your line of thought because I, I completely agree with that I think most of us do Fred that if we if we if we wear a persona if we put on a persona we think um, people will approve of us or we will be liked or in our vanity or pride whatever the motives are um, to, to whatever in whatever way we care persona that's false to our sins that covers them up um, we shelter ourselves hide ourselves to come out of that my experience is from everything I've known from literature is always painful it's as if something goes on in the soul by virtue of the nature of the soul that there's this goodness if we take Plato or Aristotle or Thomas there is a nature to the soul when we when we commit a sin, even if it doesn't show in a bruise on our arm, something happens spiritually. Every moment, every moment of self-discovery, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna make a pretty firm assertion here. Every moment of self-discovery is like a rebirth and a renewal. I've I, I've said this before when we when we did tragedy. Sefere, the word suffering, comes from fruitful, to bear. Every time we suffer from a moment of self-discovery, when we're struck with a pain, I don't like that about myself, let's say, I want to change it, is a moment of renewal. The, the word suffering means fere, to care for it, to bear fruit. Because in that moment, I'm not who I was the moment before. Something happens, and I'm saying, I mean, to, to sort of differ with you a little bit, Fred, that I don't think self-discovery ever goes on without suffering in some measure. But it takes a spiritual form, so it corresponds to <coughs> somebody cutting our, you know, cutting our finger. Um, but I'll throw that open to the rest of you. I mean, you, you may have, a, the rest of you may have other thoughts, but my own, my own experiences and from everything I've known in literature... Is whenever we have these moments of self-knowledge, self-discovery, when we look at something and, and we say, "I don't like that about myself," or 
those are painful moments. It's as if something spiritually happens that is that represents a moment of rebirth, renewal, a growth take place. We're not who we were. And that's generally painful. I don't know that it ever happens without pain because something something is lost. Tracy, you wanna jump in on this? <coughs> the only thing I have to add before Mark goes is um, that Oedipus forgave himself. So I think that's part of the process of suffering and becoming that new person after you've realized, you know, that you're different than you were before. Right, right. And it's a that's a painful process too, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and coming to that is um, <coughs> like a growth, you know. If you can get there. Remember, yeah. just just to, if we go for if we go back to Dante for a moment. Remember, everybody in hell was caught in their world. They didn't know that they didn't know. They were just repeating this. They were fixed. Everybody going up purgatory is suffering from whatever penance they're doing, and they're also glad because they want to do that because there there can come a point. It's like going to confession. I think most of us go to confession with uneasy feelings. I think it's really, I think it's really, I mean, Aristotle said this. You, you know that you're becoming virtuous when, you're, when you take pleasure in doing hard, the hard things that you know you should do. So if taking out the garbage is a chore for you and you grumble and gripe, you're not quite virtuous. But if you reach a day when you can actually take pleasure in taking out the garbage, you know you're becoming virtuous. If we ever reach a day where we look forward to going to confession, we're like the people in purgatory. We're taking on a penance, but we're being glad for doing that for the goodness that comes. So it's just another way of trying to back up what you're saying, Tracy. Mark, sorry that's taking so long. Go ahead. I'll make it quick since it's getting late. I am not aware of any other Greek story that I've written with such a divine ending. Yep. And what I mean by that is one of the differences between the ancient gods and or pre-Christian gods is they were always based on human emotions, human actions. You know, somebody got mad and turned somebody into a lizard, right? Or what? You know, whatever. They're always based on human human things. Where Christianity is much more divine, Christ is much more divine. It's it's greater things. I'm not aware of any other Greek story. Or Roman story for or Byzantine, well not Byzantine, um, uh, pre-Christian, yeah, pre-Christian story that has such a divine ending. Now, and w- with that, I think that the all because I'm, I guess I'm saying it's a divine ending because to me it's the it's the ultimate reward for his ultimate suffering because all through the first two plays it's nobody has more reason to suffer than this guy. Everybody run away. You know, he's a pariah on society. Everybody's heard of this guy. Don't be like him. Right. 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 So he has the had the ultimate suffering and therefore gets the ultimate reward at the end. And I think that's kind of my point. Yeah, it's amazing to me. <clears throat> Let me just say this and then we'll we'll that what one of the things that amazes me about this play is that it is that it takes what's implied in every tragedy that some evil is answered and a new ground is laid for a new founding, something new, whether it's Oedipus Rex or Antigone or the Orstai, whatever it is. But we've never, in 
and I'm not aware of anything in the pre-Christian world, a, a tragic action has never been completed in an experience of holiness. We're entering a new world, and to me, um, this is an amazing play. Shakespeare will come to this at the end of his life. I mean, we'll, we, will, we will see it um, when we do Pericles, but it's a remarkable thing that's happening in this play because he's, he's, he's showing a world in terms of justice, which was the highest ideal of that world, to be just, and showing how unjust people are and the cleverness they have to conceal their injustice, Korean and, and uh, um, Polynices. Um, I think um, Sue and Fred just and and Jeannie all were right on in their in their you know their understanding of those scenes, but he's he's going beyond that. So it it is an amazing ending. It truly is an amazing ending, and it, and it's just another instance in my mind of somebody having intimations of Christ. Christ is not there; they don't know him, but he saw something that we've not seen in other po poets. <clears throat> And it's rooted in our human nature. It has to do with suffering. The greatness of this play it goes back to Mark's definition last week, I think, about irony. Oedipus's blessedness rests in the fact that he had to learn to see his own sins. He couldn't deny them. He lived in innocence thinking he was innocent and reached a point where he realized that he was guilty of things that he didn't know and he, um, the suffering that resulted from him, that was awful. It led to his blinding himself. The beauty of that play is that he learns that, that what we see from that is, I think, what Sophocles is showing us is that blessedness comes from learning to see your sins and suffering them and going beyond. And the beyond for him was blessedness. That's extraordinary. That's a pre-Christian world. It, it just shows you, it, for me, it shows you Christ is present in our world, even when we don't see him. Christianity, he, he comes into the world to make it explicit and active in our lives, but Sophocles is doing something to approach that in an amazing way. And we're, we're, we're getting close to Christianity. He's only a couple of hundred years away from Christ. So, Anyway, amazing play. Next week, for, we're, we're going to do Shakespeare. Um, I thought, isn't that what we're doing next? I think we're doing. We're going to do King Lear and then Pericles. Aren't we going to do Antigone? No. I hadn't planned on doing it, Sue. Um, and I'd rather not. I mean, I, I, we've done. I mean, I, I wanted to do the Oedipus thing. I, I, I think I actually had something I wanted to do tonight, but with Antigone. But we started late again and. Let's do. We're gonna do Lear. We're gonna we're gonna go to the modern world pretty directly to finish this up. I thought we would spend two or three weeks on King Lear and then do Pericles. It's the one play I've been wanting to get to for a couple of years. We'll do King Lear and Pericles. Pericles is a sacramental play, um, and as you read King Lear and Pericles, keep in mind Aeschylus and Sophocles. I'd be surprised if you didn't find them everywhere. So King Lear next week. It's it's one of the two most painful plays ever been written, I think, of Shakespeare. You guys all stay safe. Um, it's good to see you again. Um, good night, all.
keep us keep us each other in prayers can you all see you next week thank you bye bye Say, Doc. Wait, turn the reporters off. I'm sorry.